Okay, so we're back for another episode of Two Root Twos, and this week we're going to be talking about second-order thinking. And before we get started with second-order thinking, let's talk about first-order thinking. So, Nathan, what do you think is first-order thinking? Well, after reading about second-order, I would think first-order is thinking about the results, uh, the direct results of whatever action you're going to do. Yeah, so if I go to push you, I would be thinking about you falling down on the floor. Exactly. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, that was that would be the five-year-old version of me back when you were one years old. I'd be like, push this guy, he's going to fall on the floor. That's yeah. going to be the direct result. And uh, first order thinking uh, actually has some advantages. I was thinking about this because, you know, in the... Uh, I mean, we're going to be talking about the advantages of second order thinking today. But first order thinking does have some advantages. Uh, it's very quick. You know, all I am thinking about are the direct consequences of my actions. So um, I don't have to think in too much depth. All I have to have is kind of a, you know, good understanding of the physics of the real world or whatever. And I can kind of predict what's going to happen, at least the immediate results of my actions, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's first order thinking. It's thinking about what's going to happen directly when you do something. Um, so what then is second word thinking? So it's the results of the results. So first order being I'm thinking about pushing you down, you're going to fall. Mm -hmm. But second order would be what is the result of them falling and hitting the ground? Like maybe they hit their head, busted open, got to run to the hospital. That's yeah. this, the result of the result. Maybe they're going to plot for days on end about how they're going to avenge themselves as a little child on me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. So second order thing is just thinking about the consequences of the consequences. And then, you know, you can extend that further out, third order, fourth order. Basically, the when you do an action in the world, there are consequences, and those um, results also have consequences, and that continues outwards. So second order thinking... And in general, I think kind of inclusive in this concept of second order thinking are also third and fourth order effects. So the idea is that you explore the tree, the branching tree of consequences of your actions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, this leads us to, first of all, what have you noticed? Well, one thing I wanted to say is compared to first order thinking, second order thinking is uh, more difficult, right? Because it's like what you said. Now, after, you know, say, the older brother pushes his little brother onto the floor, you know, the first order um, uh, thinking sequence would just be, oh, he's going to fall on the floor. Second order would be thinking, well, maybe he's going to hit his head, like what you said, and we'll have to take him to the hospital. But also, just falling on the floor could have a bunch of poten potential ramifications, not just one, mm -hmm. you know? It could be that uh, maybe, you know, he's uh, holding something in his, in his hand, a piece of food, and it falls on the floor. And now, you know, I'm going to have whoever pushed him. In this scenario, I'm thinking about me pushing you, you know, <laughs> clearly as the nice older brother that I am. But, uh, you know, maybe you're eating a piece of ice cream. It's going to fall on the floor. And a second order consequence would be me having to clean up the ice cream. Um, a second order consequence could be, you know, me as a child getting a spanking from my parents or not being able to go do something I enjoy. Like those are all second order consequences. And as you notice, you can keep listing out likelihoods of things that can happen. And this is a deliberate and slow process. 
you know? Mm. So that's something to note, at least about second order thinking, is it's much, it takes much more time. You have to think about the likelihood of relevant consequences of things and then iterate through them. Um, but, you know, like I said, it does have its advantages because it allows you to think through a problem in detail or think through something in detail. Uh, it does lead to, if you don't, if you, if you didn't engage in second order thinking, what would happen is um, what's known as, I would say in popular culture, as the law of unintended consequences. So um, could you tell us a little bit about the law of unintended consequences? How, what, how do you think about it? Um, so I typically think it's the things that you, like if I'm trying to do something good, um, I don't know, uh, start cleaning people's cars or whatever on the street. Like, mm -hmm. I f that makes me feel good. I'm cleaning their cars. But I could not be thinking about the one neighbor that likes his car dirty. And now he's going to, I don't know, shoot me or stab me or whatever. So I, yes. my intentions were to just clean people's cars. But I didn't think through about all my neighbors. And maybe they don't like me touching their stuff. And now I'm stabbed. So that would I, I it's a very bad example, but it's, <laughs> that's a, that's a uh, I can take your example and probably make it. I, I know where you're going. Something that's more like I feel like this this idea comes from economics a lot and economic mm -hmm. thinking. But let's say you were to do that, you were to go through and clean all your neighbors' cars, right? Well, maybe you, you just think, okay, I'm just going to do something nice for all my neighbors, and they end up liking me. And let's say one of your neighbors has a car cleaning business. Well, now you clean up all the cars in the neighborhood and no one's going to him anymore to clean up their cars. And so he goes bankrupt. And so an unintended consequence of not engaging in second order thinking is in this situation, that's it's, um, an unintended consequence is him going bankrupt. So that's that's sort of the law of unintended consequences. If you don't think through all the effects of your actions to enough degrees, second and third order, then um, it'll have these consequences that maybe you didn't want. You just wanted to do something nice for all your neighbors, right? Yeah. You didn't want to make your one of your neighbors go bankrupt. Um, yeah. And there's some examples from the chapter we read that I think were also along this vein. Like they mentioned when the British were ruling Delhi, so and that they started paying the local Indians to bring in cobras. And so you know because there were too many cobras and too many snakes running around, it was dangerous. And so what ended up happening was initially, I guess, Indians brought in the cobras to get money, but then they started just breeding cobras because, you know, the English would pay them money for a cobra. <laughs> so the um, unintended consequences were that there were more cobras and now they were actually getting bred um, due to, but even though the actual um, goal or the initial goals were that they wanted to eliminate cobras. And so that's another example of not engaging, I guess, in, in second order thinking. Yeah, that, yeah that and example, an example of unintended consequences. Go ahead. There's a show I watch on YouTube called um, Examples and Unintended Consequences, and that example was on that show. And they just go through oh. they just go through like a bunch of governments and talk about all the unintended consequences of whatever they thought was good, and that was one of the examples. I thought it was cool that it, it matched up because I had never heard it before that show. I've got an interesting example from the real world, my work, um, that was actually very recent. So we developed this application that lets um, students find, you know, local part-time jobs and work them uh, for, you know, a couple shifts a week or whatever, and then get paid, right? So employers post shifts that they need to be worked. 
And then students can find those shifts in the application and say, oh, I'm going to work this shift, say, on Saturday for five hours, and they'll go work it, and then they'll get paid, mm -hmm. right? So pretty simple. One of the factors we use um, to suggest shifts is the, uh, is the uh, you know, home address or the current living address of the students. And, and we use that and compare it to the location of the employer or the shift and then we say, you know, the students that are closest will get recommended the most shifts. So we had one student that figured this out, that it was a factor, and he changed his um, living address to be the shifts. My headphones just died. So, oh, okay. yeah, so I'm, I'm having to switch to my um, desktop. Is it going to be working fine now? I think so, yeah. Um, it's just, it was just my, what I'm hearing. So hopefully there won't be too much of an echo. What did you get my, did you get my story so the student changed his address? Yeah, I heard he changed his address. And then what happened after he? Yeah, so he changed his address to be the exact address of the, of the work location where all the shifts are. So that he would get all the suggestions and he could have his pick. Basically. Oh, that's yeah. So Unintended consequence mm. of the way our algorithm works, and you know you don't anticipate that, and those are things that happen. Even when you try to think through second order uh, effects, which we tried to do in this case, but we still weren't able to think in this particular situation where a student figures out how the algorithm works and then sort of hacks it to change their you know living location to be the exact spot oh. of the employer's address. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, that's sort of about the law of unintended consequences. Now, this is also something that I think is extremely clear when you start thinking about second order effects. But I want to ask you about this. So it's the idea of, well, I don't want to phrase it in any way. I just want to ask you a question. And the question is, do you think you can ever do just one thing? Mm, not, no. I mean, so, can you so I'm guessing you mean like some some action that doesn't have anything that it, it um, changes. That's what you're asking. Like, can I? Is there something I can do that doesn't affect anything outside of me? Well, not anything outside of me, but basically, it just has that one. It's I'm the calls. It has that one effect, and it stops there. If there are if there are examples of that, they're very few. Um, it would have to be something that maybe you did in your head, I guess, if you did some action in your head. But I don't, I don't think I would consider that an action in this case. So yeah. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to say yes. no. There are no actions that don't have an outside effect. I think you're. I mean, I think you're right. I think it's impossible to act in the world without creating some effect that is going to have a network of consequences interacting with everything. And, and if you think about any particular example, I mean, let's just take the example of you working on a piece of software. You might think, well, I'm just going to change the um, the interior of this function, right? Mm. Its interface is going to remain the same. Uh, the way it interacts with the program is going to um, remain the same. All I'm changing are variable names and internals in the way the function does its computation, right? Yeah. Okay. 
Well, changing that, what are the what are some of the effects that's going to have beyond just the surface, you know, changes in the code? Um, well, I mean, the first one I'm thinking is depending on how you change the variables, other people might not understand what's going on inside of the function. Um, yes. If you truly didn't change what it does, then it shouldn't affect your program. But I mean, it's unlikely that you made alterations to it that didn't affect its result. Um, yes. But the biggest I can think of, just if you just did variable change names, would be that other people in your work would be confused about that function now, or maybe they don't understand as well as they did before. Exactly. I mean, at some point, other people are going to look at that. The, the other people that are looking at it, they're going to see your changes that you've made, probably, in the code from the previous version. They're going to start asking questions. It's already affecting neurons in their mind. Mm -hmm. uh, like, why did this person change these things to be this new way of naming? Um, they're going to approach you about how to, you know, why did you rename these variables? Or in your pull request, pull request you'll have a little conversation explaining all of that. You know, and this is, this is for one of the most minute, insignificant things you could possibly do as a program. Um, you know, like a change of a variable name. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it really, everything in the world is connected with everything else. That's where we get these ideas, the butterfly effect, etc. But it, it really is true that we are in a web of interconnected individuals and all your actions ripple through that web every time and cause changes in the weights and relationships between all these different things that are connected. And I think you start noticing this when you do when you engage in second order thinking acting. Mm -hmm. uh, you start noticing, well, okay, um, if I do this one change, it's going to have this consequence, and it's going to affect you know this thing over here. And then, but it could also that that thing getting changed could affect these five other things, and then that just keeps spiraling out. I wanted to read, actually, a quote um, from John Moore, or Muir, um, who was mentioned in the, cat, in the in, uh, chapter we read. And I went and looked him up on Wikipedia. He was a really interesting guy. He was a naturalist um, in America in the 19th century. So he, and he walked around in the, in the wilderness and was one of the first people to write about the preservation of nature and all this type of stuff. Um, and he was one of the first environmental philosophers. And he said, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Like if you try to just reach in and grab some little object and say, okay, I just want to get this one little thing, but that's all I care about. I don't want anything else. And you start pulling on it. Then you notice that you're pulling on this massive, you know, tarp or tar or web of it being connected to everything else, all the other fabric of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought he phrased that really interestingly. But that's also some sort of a, a new concept I have thinking about this, of second order thinking and also the way things in the world are interconnected. Um, now, beyond this fact of you know, the interconnectedness of everything and thinking through the consequences of actions and there are ripple effects through the interconnected web of the universe. Um, what are areas now, so now we get to the application part, so what are areas where you think second order thinking um, is particularly useful? Like um, what are its maybe like the, be the best places where you can use it? I mean, I would, the first thing that I would think of would be any kind of government policy. I mean, because mm -hmm. 
if you don't, I mean, I was just watching something about carp the other day that they put in a lake and then they took over the entire ecosystem, killed all the other fish. And now they're trying to get up to the Great Lakes and they have this electric barrier where they electrocute fish constantly all day. So like they were just trying to add some more fish and they ended up completely destroying the ecosystem. So uh, anything, because I mean, the government has such a massive impact on the lives of everyone. So any new policy you introduce, I would think second order thinking would be extremely valuable to try to prevent things like, I don't know, the destruction of an entire river. I think going along with what you're talking about is areas where there's a high risk. Hmm. So anytime there's a high risk involved with something, let's say you're wanting the first people to build an airplane or some kind of like flight uh, across, you know, around the world. This is the point where, you know, there's a lot of danger involved. People's lives are on the line and it really, really matters. And that, that's also the case for, you know, a lot of governmental policy. You know, you might be thinking, well, just fish in a lake but, or, or whatever. But now there's lots of fishermen that aren't being able to, you know, sell fish. You know, they're going bankrupt. Now they're having to find new jobs. They're not able to support their families, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it has, as we just talked about, all these repercussions that keep rolling out. So there's a lot of risk associated with these actions. So at any time there's a lot of risk associated with something, it's really important to engage in or it can be very useful to engage in sector thinking. You, you know, like if you wanted to land on the moon, yeah. you would want to be thinking about what are all the possible things that could go wrong and what are the things that even if they go right could lead to things that would go wrong. Yeah, but I think it's more natural in high risk um, exam in high risk things that you're trying to do to think second order. Whereas um, something is like, we want to put more fish in a lake. You don't think of that as a high risk scenario, but it ends up yeah. costing you millions at the end of it. So yeah, that's true. I, I agree that high risk situations, it's much more valuable, but as a human, uh, we typically don't think in the second order, at least from my experience. I don't think unless it's a very high risk situation, like I'm putting a lot of money into something, then I'll start thinking about all the consequences of my action. But if it's something small, I typically don't do it. Well, it's interesting now that we're talking about this, and I said high risk, because there are certain types of high risk situations where you do, I think, naturally engage in sector order thinking, but there are other types where I guess you could also call these high risk situations where you absolutely don't, it would be the worst thing you could do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, a, I don't know, uh, something, a bear is running at you um, 100 meters away, and you need to, you know, you could either get in your car and drive away, but you have to do it quickly. You, know, you don't want to think about all the consequences. Like, what if I can't start my car at all? You don't have time for it. Yeah. Just get your car and get the heck out of there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, the first idea that comes to you is probably the idea that's going to save your life. Might not be, but you don't have time to think about it either way. Yeah. You know? Um, anyway, that's interesting. Um, some of the things I mentioned in the book, though, is that it's uh, useful when you're trying to prioritize your long-term interests over short-term gains. So evaluating... The relative, like relative comparisons. You know, mm -hmm. if I want to, um, what are some examples? They say, well, they say, you know, I want to have a fit body, but I also enjoy candy. So it's like, well, what are the comparative benefits of, say, abstaining from this candy where I'm not going to have the pleasure of, you know, flavor, sensory explosion in my mouth? Um, <laughs> and uh, the, and, and comparing that to, say, maybe having a fit body. Mm -hmm. 
just kind of a prolonged example of the story. Uh, do you remember this? Yeah, they were talking about um, when she was first kicked out of Egypt, and then she had to decide what to do, either try to get a short-term gain by just going back, or maybe aligning with an uh, outside force that might upset her people, but in the long term it might give her more power. I think that was... I'm probably missing a lot of details there, but yeah. Yeah, that's the general gist of the story, as I remember it too. Basically what happened, I think she was at warring with her brother, there was some kind of confusion there about who was you know, going to be the main, I guess, ruler in Egypt. And it, in Egypt, then, as interestingly, I think even to this day probably, there was sort of, uh, there was a complex political structure in place, let's say. So she, you needed to cooperate with the Romans at the time. So the Egyptians did, because mm-hmm. um, the Romans were the ruling power. But you couldn't cooperate too much because all the people would, you know, disrespect you and they would revolt against you. So at the same time, you just sort of show strength and independence. And she was able to find a way that by, you know, siding with uh, Caesar, that uh, she was able to win the power in her country, still show enough strength and have autonomy to rule, and and her people didn't revolt against her. You know? mm-hmm. um, and it does make me think, too, about like the complexity of that region, because today, those rulers, a lot of them have the same difficulties. You know, They have to appease whoever the big players are on the world stage, whether it be China, the U.S., or Russia, um, or maybe even the European Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, while at the same time, appeasing to their own bases who see these, you know, world powers as being antagonistic to their own personal, like, national interests. Yeah. And so they, you know, submit too much to the foreign powers who are saying, look, do this or we're going to kill you. (laughs) Um, Then there'll be be a revolt by their own people that'll kill them. So, I don't know, I I noticed interesting parallels with at least some of what I know about historical um, facts of the region. Yeah. And then, but anyway, so that was sort of it. Prioritizing long-term interests over short-term gains was one of the areas they said. Another area they said was constructing effective arguments, which I think this is pretty clear. If you if you um, talk to someone and they haven't thought through the consequences of any of their arguments in real detail, you usually notice that fairly. Yeah, I mean, this is something I notice when you're talking to a group that has like maintained a point of view within their group, mm-hmm. and then you talk to them about the opposite view and very quickly you'll notice that they haven't thought through it because they've been in that little group thinking the same thing and then you just ask a couple of questions the five whys and then you'll get down to the point where they haven't they haven't continued that thought all the way through yet yes yeah so i think um if you want to let's say you want to have an effective ability to present arguments that others can, that really critical analytical people are going to accept, right? Mm. Um, you definitely need to think through second or third order consequences. Now, from what I know about the psychological research, I would say that's probably the wrong approach in general if you actually want to convince me. You know, your arguments should, your, your arguments don't need to be sound and you don't need data and you don't need any of that stuff. You just need a very good emotional argument that makes people feel that they like you and, and emotionally engaged. Yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> that's not what we're here for, John. <laughs> no, that's not what we're here for. But just FYI, we need to uh, co- uh, 
series on just the psychological aspects of this at some point mm-hmm. of like how do you actually convince people persuade people because I think that's something different from the sort of logical rational aspects that we're looking at now yeah yeah, um, yeah so I think I've got one more question I guess which we could go in a different ways and this is uh, it could go in different directions but what do you think are some of the pitfalls and maybe common mistakes of second order thinking and ways that maybe you could uh, I don't know not commit those, not fall into those mistakes. I mean, <clears throat> the biggest pitfall I think is overweighting the consequences, and then in and then not doing the thing that you thought you were doing. So, like thinking through something like the bear chasing at me, and overthinking the situation, and then becoming and then just not doing anything, freezing, and then you get eaten by the bear. So, uh, I think if you think too far into the future, it can make you not act, which sometimes is worse. Yes, because not act, non-action is also an action. Yeah. And a lot of times it's better to disengage from a complicated thought process and just do something than it is to, uh, you know, find the perfect solution. Because yeah. by the time you found the perfect solution, it'll be too late. This idea is employed by startups a lot where they're like, just try it. If Here's an idea. Just try it. If it fails, it fails. You learn from it. You go on. Instead of sitting there and planning for two or three years, like what's going to be the perfect product, and then you finally, in your head, you've got this perfect idea for a perfect product, and you built it, you bring it to the market, and you figure out, like, oh, my ideas were, were, weren't right. They weren't the real market fit. You know, people didn't want this feature that I thought was super important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say, though, uh, with certain things, I wouldn't say a lot of the times it's necessary not to act. So, like, especially when you're introducing something new, it, um, it is, I think it's better to take your time with introducing something new. I, I'm, and then I'm thinking back to the policy example. Like, if you're going to put a bunch of fish in the lake, that would be an example where you really need to think about the second, third, fourth order consequences of these actions. Whereas, like, trying to get a product to the market is a little different than... Well, I don't, I don't know. It might be interesting to engage on this for a while because... There are different ways you can go about this, right? I don't, I'm not sure exactly what the details of the fish story, mm-hmm. but let's imagine that you were able to contain it into a, a, I don't know, a small ecosystem. So you're able to run a test. And that's kind of the way startups try to work a lot of times. I'm not saying they do, mm-hmm. but the conceptual idea behind it is that you have a small little group of users. As soon as you have something there, you release it to them, you know, and then you get feedback. And it's sort of more like a test and a trial to see if to see what the unintended consequences are. You know, to see what are the effects of this product. Are users using it the way we anticipated? Are you know, are they acting and engaging with it the way we thought, or is there something completely different that's happening? Yeah. And if gov- I would I would like to see government engage more in this matter. And that so they thought through maybe some second order consequences, but it's very difficult. And as you rightly point out. It takes a lot of time to think through the details and pro- likely probabilities of all these different second, third order effects. Mm. And so it's it's a lot to, a lot of times it's much easier to say, okay, can I just do a test and then just see what they are? Like just run the experiment, get some feedback, and then go from there. Yeah. Um, uh, unfortunately, government mm. seems to not work that way at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everything I'm. I seem to read about in the news when I do read about it seems to be like some massive thing that people thought of in their heads and they 
write it into law for the entire country, you know, millions and millions of people. And it's like, well, could you not have just tried this on like maybe a city first? (laughs) (laughs) Or, uh, you know, a little county or randomly chosen groups of people, you know? Yeah, that's a... uh... That's a good point, because it would be really nice to see, um, especially in situations where uh, you could have extremely bad unintended consequences, to just yeah. try to create a like a test environment and see what those, the things that you can't think about are, especially if you're trying to do something quickly. Test it out, yeah. see what the results are, and then move on to something bigger instead of just dumping a very invasive animal on a lake that kills all the other fish. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, think, I think that's one way to sort of hedge yourself against it. Now, it doesn't mean that even if you run the experiment, and let's say even you do it, a, if you were to do it a couple times, well, because of the complexity of the world and all of the potential things that can go wrong and that you can't anticipate, that doesn't mean you protect yourself against everything. Mm-hmm. You know? But it can give you, I guess, more assurance that you're not going to do something that's going to uh, you know, go crazy. Yeah. It at least gives you some feedback from the real world, let's say. Mm-hmm. But I think that's uh, the key. One of the key dangers is sort of like analysis paralysis that you don't act because you're just thinking. Yeah. Another one of the things I noticed about this is that there's this idea, and they mentioned this in the chapter, but it's the slippery slope effect. So you say, oh, well, if A happens, B is going to happen, and B is going to lead to C, C is going to lead to D. That ultimately leads to F, which means, you know, now we should never do this. Mm hmm. Um, well, that's fine philosophically, but in the real world, practically, you know, that'll probably ne- never, ever happen. Um, a- as an example, uh, for instance, there's inherent risk with walking down the steps. There are people who die every year walking down the steps, right? Mm. Does that mean we should ban walking down the steps? Because you could use this to say, well, if I walk down the steps, some people are going to trip. Now, some of those people that trip are going to injure themselves. Some of those people that injure themselves are going to die. Well, if you walk down the steps, you're going to die. So yeah. we're going to ban. You know, the, the example they use in the chapter is, uh, I think, uh, passing a law forbidding all vehicles to drive at speeds greater than zero miles per hour. That would mm-hmm. eliminate all road deaths. But it's like, uh, you know, it negates the point of getting from A to B. Yeah. Uh, it, anything faster than what a human can walk on, you know, on their feet at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so there's also another example that they give in the chapter, which I also thought was interesting. And that's where these are sort of just ways, what I'm trying to you know, show here are ways where the second and third order of thinking can lead you down paths that are mistaken. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for instance, in the United States, there have been different periods where they have prohibition against alcohol. And one of the arguments they always use is you know, taking a first drink is a Taking a drink is, uh, or your first drink is a step towards a life in sin, mm-hmm. uh, or becoming an alcoholic. Now, it is true that of all the all the alcoholics had a first drink, but the vast majority of everyone who takes a, a first drink does not become an alcoholic, or and it doesn't lead them down a life of sin. Yeah, right. Uh, that um, so that that argument is kind of a. I don't know, it's kind of like in the same vein of this argument of never walk down the steps or don't drive a car. Well, I mean, that one's interesting because, one, they're using second-order consequences to stop alcohol from being sold, right? But they're not using it to say, okay, well, what happens in a world where people can't get alcohol? 
Is there going to be a black market for it? Will people, will cops have to enforce these laws where they have to go through the streets and shoot people? And like, none of that's explored. It's just interesting that, you know, you might go down a path of something because you're trying to get somewhere specifically, in this case, no alcohol, and completely forget about this other path that ends up, I don't know, thousands of people dying and there being a huge black market for alcoholism. That has an interesting tie-in with what we talked about last week, actually, with thought experiments and why it's so important to run thought experiments and get different people's perspectives and use the relative likelihoods and probabilities of events. That also ties in here when you're doing the second order of thinking, that you do need the like probabilities and likelihoods of things, too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I had some extra questions. Do you want to go into those? Sure. So how do you think trust and trustworthiness or, first of all, do you think it relates to second order thinking? And if so, how? Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, no. Um, maybe maybe you're thinking trust in a different way than I'm thinking. Um, so how are you thinking trust? Well, like, whether or not I believe someone's telling me the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so with second order thinking, unless I'm assuming that whatever is being told to me is a, is false and then or i actually am being given bad information by someone then that would completely change my second order third order thinking yeah i think where i'm going with this is you're right if you're just kind of like doing this in isolation mm. but the idea is when you engage in second order thinking it's like what are the consequences of this action and then what are those consequences right and when you interact with people there's consequences and then when you interact with them repeatedly there's sort of repeated consequences, you know? And the idea of trust to me is that it's these multiple interactions. So you're, it's something that you build up over time. And it's built up over your predictions about, like, how is this person going to act? How are they going to do these things? And then how this person actually does act. So I think there is, at least in a way, a relationship in that it's a, um, I don't know, it's a, it's, a, it's a prolonged period of time where the consequences of your actions, like those second and third order uh, effects, uh, come into play, let's say. So if, if I tell you something and I tell you, um, don't tell anyone, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I tell you X, I say don't tell anyone X. And then sometime down the road, I find out that someone knows X, but you're the only one I'm told. Well, then I know, you know, the, cons- the consequences of that are that you're not at least you're not capable of keeping secrets relevant to X, whatever that is. You know, so then I've updated my understanding of how you are in terms of keeping things that I tell you not to tell other people. Mm. And then uh, I change my behaviors accordingly for our next interaction. Maybe I'm not going to tell you things. Or I'm going to tell you certain things based on that. So there's this this effects the the interconnectedness and the web effects are, are there, just as they are with second. Um, I think that's where I saw the connection. Okay, so kind of, uh, I guess, consistency. So depending on how you... I might, like, if I don't know you, I might make some second-order, third-order predictions about it. And then the more you hit those predictions I had, the more trust I'm going to have that you're going to behave in a certain way. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's built up over time. That's the thing. I feel like trust and trustworthiness is something that 
you it's almost impossible for you to have it on your initial encounter with something. Mm-hmm. It's a consequence of actions, their interconnectedness with the rest of the world, and then continued interaction. Yeah. Like, if I work for a company and they are, my employer is continually, let's say, um, doing things that are in my best interest for me, you know, then I'll build up a certain level of trustworthiness with that company. Well, now maybe I'm willing to make sacrifices for them because they've gone out of their way to say, you know, give me raises, um, do things to make my life easier, uh, let me have vacation, all that kind of stuff. And, and those those aren't just one-time things. A one-time thing is something different than sort of a repeated, the repeated interactions. I mean, everything is a repeated interaction. Hmm. But I don't know. I think trust is something where it's like you, you're repeatedly showing your trustworthiness over the interactions with your the individual or the two parties. Yeah. Well, it also makes it easier on you. So if hmm. if you're a very trustworthy person, someone that given some action, I know what the consequence of that action around you is going to be, then it's a lot easier for me to interact with you because I know what your response is going to be and I know how you're going to react to whatever I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I mean, this is, a, this is sort of just a related idea. They mentioned it in the chapter as being related, and so I just wanted to mention it. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess we're kind of uh, done now with the basics of second order thinking. Sort of to conclude and summarize, so... The first thing would be consider basically second order thinking. Consider the consequences of your actions and the consequences of those consequences, and then you can extend that through the consequence tree. You know, um, that's continually branching out further. If you want to go into more detail, more complexity, and then just always so and you can simplify even this to a general heuristic that is just ask yourself and then one. So, you know, I'm going to ask my boss for a raise and then one. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to um, ask this girl on a date, and then what? You know, so just continually, um, just the and then what will lead you down the sort of consequence tree. It can be your little heuristic to get through that. And then you can also sort of think through time intervals on this. So you can think through like my action, what sort of effects is it going to have immediately? Then maybe like in the minute range later, hours, months, days, weeks, etc., years. Mm. And I think that's also important to think about. So not only, so so maybe you're thinking about, you know, I'm going to eat uh, king. Well, what's the consequence of that right now? Was well, that I feel good and I'm happy. What about the consequence of me continually doing that 10 years down the road where I'm going to have a pot belly and uh, probably be really unhealthy and other things, you know, my teeth are going to be rotting, yeah. et cetera. Mm. And then, so that would be my tip to think through the different time intervals. And then finally, I guess, um, you can do this for really complicated things. I've, I've noticed it helps in maybe software engineering, things like that of that nature, but is to sketch out the consequences in a branching tree. So actually write them out. So sketch things out and write them out yourself. That'll help you visualize the whole process. Um, so th- those are sort of my conclusions and tips. Do you have any to add to that or criti- criticisms? I don't know if I have any criticisms. I think this is something that we end up, how we end up viewing people through, but without thinking about it. So uh, the more I interact with people, the more you'll think about like, well, if I do this to John, he responds in this way and then he gets mad at me. So I don't do that to John anymore. I think this is something that we kind of build up over the years. Um, but do actually doing a thought experiment in your head and going through it, uh, I think is very beneficial for 
for you not to be surprised a lot of the times, especially with people you know. So if you think through it before you do something, typically the situation is going to be better than just going in blind and saying or doing things to people. You said something right there that was uh, uh, interesting to me. You said you're not going to be surprised. For all those people who know a little bit of something about information theory, you'll know that when you're surprised, that means you've got a lot of new information. So just <laughs> FYI, surprise, I think, is a really good thing. Because <laughs> it's like, whoa, this is all new. I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe not with your friends. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess yeah, sometimes. Well, no, I'm just saying this is a complete tangent. Yeah. <laughs> They're very important, John. Yeah, it's like our mom and <laughs> maybe some random person on the internet. They somehow find this. And we're lucky. All right. We'll see y'all guys next week. Mm, farewell. <laughs>